In this era of technological innovation and labor force shakeups, elected officials often pursue policies that protect all jobs at any cost. These efforts often come in the form of trade barriers or artificial constraints on technological innovation that quote unquote save jobs. While well-intended, these actions act as walls for change that foster stagnation and erode the nation's competitive position. The rigidities they create help raise prices and discourage adaptation at the level of skills. They sound good and help current workers, but impose significant costs in terms of prices, innovations, and opportunities for future generations. In this episode of Hardly Working, Dr. Glenn Hubbard of Columbia Business School, who's also a senior fellow here at AEI, discusses his new book, The Wall and the Bridge, Fear and Opportunity in Disruptions Week. Rather than build walls, Hubbard argues, we need bridges to help workers in our dynamic economy to thrive now and later. Glenn Hubbard, thank you for joining me on Hardly Working. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you, and always a pleasure to have fellow AEI scholars and fellow Bush administration alumni on the program. Great. Yeah. So we um, and have a tradition on this podcast of asking people, um, the, f- the first question is really about their own vocational journey. How did they get from where they started in life to where they wound up in life in terms of their their careers? And so I wanted I want to do that with you. How did how did Glenn Hubbard, growing up wherever Glenn Hubbard grew up, decide that a career in economics was the thing for him? Well, it's a very interesting question. You know, nobody wakes up and says, gee, I want to be an economist when they're a kid. I, I grew up in a um, farming community in central Florida, a little uh, north of Orlando, and was always interested in things about the economy. Didn't really think of it as, as economics. When I went to college, I started studying engineering, but realized I was more interested in in questions about prosperity and growth. I and mean, for me in college, reading Hayek's Road to Serfdom and his work on decentralization and the price system and the use of knowledge were, were game changers for me, and they opened up a different world. And then it's just been uh, economics ever since. So you say you started out thinking you might be an engineer. Why did you think that was – why was that your um, sort of preset, your factory preset in terms of education? Well, I was good at math and science uh, as a kid, uh, and I saw engineering as practical. In in Central Florida, in those days and now, there are a number of very promising jobs for engineers of all all kinds. Uh, But when I started studying engineering, I I loved it, but I was really more interested in in people. And when I took my first economics course, that was kind of an aha moment. And by the time I went to graduate school, I, I knew all the math from my engineering days uh and the economics became more fun did you have engineers in your family no no my parents uh were both high school english teachers so no no engineers anywhere around yeah a a very strong humanities background though i would imagine if they're both english teachers um that's that's really interesting and uh okay great um anybody when you think about the influences in your life you look back like you know i got I got some counsel that turned out to be really um, critical in this process. Um, anybody come to mind? Yeah, I'll give you an example that's professional and then probably a, a deeper one that's personal. So on the professional, the, the two teachers at my undergraduate institution who really opened my eyes, not just to the subject of economics, but to the power of ideas, were two men named uh, James Alexander and Ken White. And they were phenomenal teachers. It's been my pleasure to try to give back to that university to honor them over many years and generations of people like me that they were able to turn light bulbs on. So I I view that I owe a huge debt of gratitude to those two men. At a personal level, the town doctor where I grew up, Joseph Ackerman, was um, a phenomenal example for me. He was our our scout leader, uh, leader in church, somebody who showed what a devoted professional steward was in life, not simply good at what he does, but 
uh, in reflecting values. And so I frequently think about his example uh, at, a, at a personal, at a stewardship level. And you were, uh, you were in Scouts, it sounds like. Yes, I'm an Eagle Scout, very active actually in New York City in the Greater New York Councils for the Boy Scouts. Both my sons are Eagle Scouts. Scouting for me was an enormous development opportunity. It introduced me to a whole new world that my family never would have opened the doors of. So I, I can't say enough good about what scouting can do for young men and young women. Yeah, I I, I am also an Eagle Scout. And I and as I reflect on it, we I grew up in Oregon. We had a great time with, you know, camping and all the outdoors things. But I think that one of the things, the, one of the most valuable things that I learned out of it was actually how to run a meeting. Yes. Which... It's not something you typically associate with the Boy Scouts, but is, in fact, a large part of the kind of the leadership development. All kinds of managerial skills. Think about the opportunities kids hardly ever get to run a meeting, to um, devise and balance a budget, to organize trips. I mean, all those are really good life skills. It's like having an executive coach when you're a kid. Yeah, it's it's, it's really uh, it's it's a trick, right? They do all that fun stuff with you. In the meantime, you're actually learning something. So, yeah, yeah that, that's that's great. Okay, so we're here to talk about your book, Bridges and Walls. Let's start with the title. What are the bridges and walls you're talking about in your book, and how do they relate to economic and social renewal? Well, you know, the, the metaphor of the wall and the bridge is one I'd had in my head for some time. I, I teach at Columbia a class in political economy where I try to map thinkers from Adam Smith onward to contemporary problems. And this example always come to me from Smith, who's a, a central character in my, uh, in my book. The way I, I think of the metaphor is um, imagine you have a coin and the head side of the coin is growth. Now, most people like growth. I mean, it's, a, it's increases in our living standards. It's, uh, possibilities to do what we want. I mean, very few people are against growth, some, but very few. But every coin that has a head has a tails, and the tails is disruption. So even Smith in The Wealth of Nations understood that the kind of openness to change that makes an economy bigger uh, is disruptive. And when you get to the present economy, even though Smith and early Enlightenment thinkers didn't have theories of economic growth, Economists do today, but all of them are also based on openness to change. And the, the idea I had in my head for the book was the two central forces of modern economic life are technological change and globalization. They have led to enormous changes in possibilities, and yet at the same time have led to enormous disruption. But that brings to the wall and the bridge. You know, unfortunately, a political discourse gets stuck between words like capitalism and socialism that's not really what the debate is. The debate is, how do you deal with disruption? And most politicians, Democrat or Republican for that matter, try to deal with it with walls. Let me do something that makes your disruption go away. That could be anti-immigration. It could be anti-trade. It could be slowing down technological advance, all with the comfort that I'll make it like it used to be. An alternative is to know that we are going to a better world and helping people build a bridge to that world. You know, a bridge either takes you to somewhere across something difficult or brings you back. And so the book is really about, from Smith on, what do we know about um, economists' views of bridges? How do you prepare people for opportunity? Uh, and how do you reconnect them when they're lost? What in econ speak would be social insurance. So I'm curious, I, I, Actually, last week I was out in uh, Holland, Michigan for a um, Liberty Fund program on Adam Smith. And uh, we spent probably at least two days, maybe two and a half days, on the theory of moral sentiments before we got into the wealth of nations. The theory of moral sentiments being Smith's first uh, and probably the most foundational of his books. Have you spent much time on it? And, and I suspect you have. And what do you think of it and how it relates to his economic thought? Yes, I'm so glad you, you brought it up, Brett. You know, in the book, I pay a lot of attention to the theory of moral sentiments. And when I teach, I remind students that the wealth of nations 
this truly radical book. Uh, it was written actually before 1776. It was before what we would call the real modern industrial capitalist era, but Smith still nailed it. But the book, of course, comes on the heels, distant heels, really, of the 1759 book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And The Theory of Moral Sentiments tells you much more about Smith, the moral philosopher. You know, he's not an economist the way we use that term today. There really wasn't such a thing. Uh, people who thought about economics came from a variety of disciplines. Smith came from philosophy. And one of the things that's always struck me in the theory of moral sentiments is powerful is Smith's notion of mutual sympathy, which I think in today's parlance we might use the term empathy. And the, the point I make in the book is that classical thinkers like Smith really were in um, to what I would call an all-in economy, that you as an individual should have the right to be all-in, but also we should be all in, like everybody in the boat, mass participation, mass flourishing. That's a classical idea, and it comes from the theory of moral sentiments. And I think oftentimes economists celebrate the wealth of nations as a peon to laissez-faire. That's not really right. Smith was very much into what today we would call an inclusive society, uh, at least on his terms. Um, so – the, the sympathy slash empathy um, argument is something that I'm, you know, I'm really interested in. In fact, I just published a paper called Dignity at Work that relies implicitly very heavily on Smith's insight about um, economics being downstream from um, sort of human sociability. Um, and I, I think that's really, uh, I'd like to know what you think of that, uh, but but it strikes me that much of the dysfunction that we see in our society um, is around a kind of breakdown around this uh, Smith's idea of sympathy, uh, of connection, of um, being able to enter into the um, psychological, moral life of others. Um, what, what do you think of that? I think it's an incredibly important idea. Your work and participation in the economy is a central theme in my book, largely because, as you put it, it was a central theme of classical thinkers like Smith. One reason that I've never been very sympathetic to the idea of something like a universal basic income is that it's not tying people to work and participation. You know, you use the word dignity, and I think it's very important that economists don't like to use words like that, but we should. Uh, work offers individual and social dignity. And who among us wants to be told, I'll just pension you off. You don't really have anything to contribute to society. It's, it's little wonder that areas that have experienced economic devastation have seen both the loss of work for many people, men mainly, but many people, uh, and with it, uh, whole communities. I think economists have not been helpful here. You know, I'll, I'll give you uh, an example. When we talk about uh, globalization and technological change, economists reason through what they call steady states. So we're in this world. Now I'm going to change something in the world or a policy, and then I'm in a different world. And, of course, that doesn't happen overnight. There's a transition. And we refer to everything in that transition as a transition cost. Now imagine you're an individual. And I have eliminated the usefulness of a skill you've spent your life developing, and you must now retrain. It's not that good to be called a transition cost. It's little wonder that neoliberal preachers in the economics profession are not catching on with the public. I mean, I, I tell a story in the book that when I argued with George Bush about um, steel tariffs, at the end of the day, when he rejected my advice, he told me he agreed with everything I said. But he said, you know, you didn't give me any way I could help those people. You don't understand. The vice president and I went to places like Wheeling, West Virginia, and we promised help, and you didn't tell me how. So work and dignity are important. Economists need to realize it. And our political process and our economic policy needs to do something about people, not wave them away as transition costs. Yeah, well, let's let's go a little further down that road. I mean, uh, as I was thinking about your book, I, I thought maybe I could just summarize your argument by saying that kind of um, innovation, trade, technology, 
these things are good for people writ broadly, but in a lot of cases are kind of bad for persons, uh, individuals or individual communities that, that bear these transition costs that you talked about. When you think about the various inputs that go into making this complex and complicated trade-offs that end up causing growth, we've heard a lot about this with respect to trade over the last 20 years. And the, but there are others who say that it's not, it's not trade, it's actually automation that contributes more to these creation of these transition costs. What do you think of that? What are, where are you on that question? How big a deal is trade relative to the challenges of automation? Well, trade is important, and particularly in the geographic concentration of some of the shocks that we've seen. But technological change is by far the dominant factor in changing our lives, for the better and for challenges. For years at Columbia, I've taken um, students to places like Youngstown, Ohio, and when they look at what's left of steel in, in Youngstown, I remind them that it wasn't really trade that killed places like Youngstown. It was a technological advance that American steel firms had been slower to imitate. We were still in very large integrated steel companies from the rest of the rest of the world had done something different. So I, I do think both technology and globalization are important. And our goal ought not to be to say, how can we throw sand in those gears? It's more a matter of how do we make an economy flourish so that people can flourish again uh, in whatever work uh, they choose. You see, in Smith's day, that wasn't a big deal. You know, Smith, the core of the wealth of the nations, of course, is the idea of competition. That's what, was, that's what made the Swiss watch of the economy gut in Smith's view. But the kind of jobs that were gained and lost, it was easy to imagine a worker losing one relatively unskilled job and then he could get another unskilled job. But of course, in, in today's world, that's not what we're talking about. We're, we're talking about all livelihoods being disrupted. And so I, I think when Smith talked about competition, the Smith of the moral sentiments, I'm sure, would have said, I mean ability to compete, not just the fact of competition. So let's get everybody able to compete. And so in today's world, to your question about work and changes from globalization or technological change, we have to prepare people for that world. We do know how to do it. We are simply not doing it. So we want to get into a little bit of the, of the policy recommendations around that. I, I, my area is workforce development. I worked at the Labor Department under President Bush, helped lead the Employment and Training Administration, thought a lot about skills and skill development. You offer kind of a portfolio a, of policy options, of policy ideas to help deal with this on the preparation side of the workforce. Can you walk us through those and talk a little bit about what you see as the main needs and the, and the main mechanisms for supporting new and incumbent workers? Sure. I, you know, when you, you know, said the word, you know, portfolio or, or set of ideas, this is one of the challenges in talking about bridges, both to the public and importantly to politicians who may try to think about economic policy, because, you know, I don't have a silver bullet. People who believe in walls claim they do. Like if we build a wall on the Mexican border, our problems will go away. I'll make technology slow down. I'll make it 1955 again. Those kinds of promises sound so seductive, and I have nothing like that. But what I can say, if you take seriously the metaphor of the bridge, there are things that work. So think about the kinds of jobs that reskilling or new skilling for younger workers are required at the mid-skill level. They're largely things where community colleges are the foot soldiers. You know, Columbia University, where I'm blessed to teach, we're neither the problem nor the solution for a lot of these things, but community colleges are. The problem is they're woefully underfunded. And, and I get crazed when I hear political elites talk about, well, let's have free tuition. Well, that doesn't stand up any resources for community colleges. The, the genius of the land-grant college movement was the idea that you needed supply-side interventions. You needed to change the level of resources. We need that again. Austin Goolsby and I some years ago had worked out a plan for a federal block grant uh, for community colleges. I describe it in my book. I do think there are ways we can build on the community college system 
and it's very natural partnerships with business. Uh, businesses largely get involved, not just out of charitable impulse, but frankly, selfishly, they, they get skilled workers. So I think community colleges are definitely on the front lines. We also need to rethink our policies towards supporting work. If you think of uh, a ladder of skills, you can't really advance or climb a ladder until you're on it in the first place. And so when I look at programs like the Earned Income Tax Credit, I think back in the day when it was designed, it was thought of as a work program, although its its largest contributions are really to people who have children. I'd like to see a much, much more generous childless EITC for single, younger workers that massively supports work. And I think the preparation both from the educational system, community colleges, but from on-the-job training by encouraging attachment to work are going to be very, very powerful. So I, I do think preparation works, and I do think historically in this country we have done it successfully. We just haven't done it recently. So the, the community college issue, um, I, I, I like all of your I like all of your prescriptions here. Um, the community college issue, I mean, we've seen actually since the pandemic started a decline in enrollments. You know, not taking advantage of the training opportunities that are already there. And we've also got this huge problem with completion. People start training programs or start associate degree programs and don't finish. They get just enough skill. That is, that is the big, that's the big issue. I mean, when people talk about college, whether it's community college or traditional four-year colleges, they think about going to college. What matters in the labor market is graduating from college. And as you point out, community colleges have not succeeded historically or recently in completion rates. One of the things to talk about in the work on a block grant is how to tailor funds to encourage that. It turns out we have evidence from a lot of demonstration experiments about relatively small interventions that work in terms of encouraging completion. And we need to do those because you're a hundred percent right that that is absolutely critical. We can't just sort of throw people in college. We've got to get them out. Yeah, so what do you see as those supplementary interventions to help people complete? They range from a variety of things. Some are as, um, as modest as small loan programs. You know, imagine I'm a single mother with a child. A health event happens, and for lack of, let's say, $1,000, I'm going to have to drop out of school for a while to get my act together. Well, that really shouldn't be happening. Do we have systems that check in on people more? We know that interventions, particularly from people who don't come from families with a lot of college-educated parents or family members, that kind of check-in is shown to have significant effects. So it's not just you know new college buildings or helping people with their tuition. It's the things wrapped around it that would encourage completion. As I say, the good news is we do have some demonstration projects on what works, and as I say, when I talk to foundations in different parts of the country, you can help in your area. There are partnerships you could imagine with a community college where you can provide financial support that's both good for the people in that area uh, and ultimately good for your business. Yeah, Steve Goldsmith was here yesterday to talk about his new book on Growing Fairly, along with Ben Moldovsky and Stephen Moret, who runs the Strata Foundation now, looking at this. And one of the one of the issues we talked about was, for instance, in a in the Northern Virginia Community College system, right now there's one guidance counselor for every thousand students. Um, That's crazy. It really is crazy. I think in some ways it's worse than doing nothing because it provides so little support, a kind of support that can only add to confusion, I think, among students. So I'm I'm really with you on this idea that we need to do more around um, supporting students in school um, so that they, you know, they have a resource to turn to as they're sorting through some of these difficult questions, people who can be resources to help find resources, like the, you know, the, you know, the person who has to drop out because they, they've got a short, some sort of short-term problem that is getting in the way of finishing their education. So the idea of Free community college just seems to me so wildly off base from what the problem actually is when the the real problem is completion and a lack of support for students. Yeah, what we talk about um, 
Austin and me and our proposal and I talk about in the book is um, basically think of the community college audience, if you will, in two buckets. One are younger people entering the labor market and the skills they need. But community colleges are also wonderful opportunities for um, mid-career workers who find themselves needing different skills to go back. And, you know, it's not just encouraging completion of an associate's degree. There can even be certificate and other opportunities. Many firms um, ranging from manufacturing to even high tech have partnered with community colleges to do that. And that's really where we ought to be spending our energy rather than talking about free tuition or forgiving student loans. So you mentioned in your book, one of my pet favorite ideas, uh, which is the personal reemployment account. Can you talk a little bit about personal reemployment accounts and what you see as the role they might play in a system that was more supportive, again, not just for new entrants, but incumbent workers? Well, it's a great question. I've always been in love with personal reemployment accounts, having worked on them for President Bush and subsequent Republican campaigns. And the idea was always pretty simple. You remember I mentioned one of the kinds of bridges is, is reconnection, you know, when you're, when you're thrown off base. And personal reemployment accounts um, look at people who are likely to be long-term unemployed. So if you go to an unemployment insurance office, you can be assigned a propensity score that says you're likely to be long-term unemployed. And as opposed to a panoply of government programs, getting both support for individual training, perhaps some income support and a bonus for early reemployment, I believe have always been uh, a good idea. As some politicians like it because they like the word personal. They like that you are redirecting it. But to me, the biggest thing is that it's a way of attaching you to work with a program that is more likely to work uh, as opposed to federal programs that haven't been as, as successful. Much to my chagrin, and it's hardly like both sides of the aisle are chomping at the bit to do this, but they really should. What do you think of extending this even further into a kind of an account when you enter the workforce, an account, a personally controlled account, not one, not another social security account, but a personally controlled account that is that you you're making as a worker, you're making a contribution to it, the employer is making a contribution. Maybe the government is also making a contribution that helps workers build up a kind of, you know, a a reserve for retraining, relocation, whatever is necessary for them to weather an employment transition, whether it's, you know, your job gets automated or the factory closes or the business closes or there's some sort of regional economic shock that you get caught up in, but that this would be the kind of thing that would be owned by the individual. And then, you know, if you go through your entire career without needing that resource, it could be converted into a regular kind of retirement account. I think it's a fantastic uh, idea. You could even imagine credits offered to uh, lower wage workers for whom the account is likely to be even the most valuable by My wonderful teacher, who's now sadly passed away, Marty Feldstein, had suggested a plan for a more private unemployment insurance along these lines several years ago. I think a better cast of that plan is is what you say, more as a reserve for training and and reskilling rather than for unemployment insurance itself. But I think it's, it's definitely a good idea. And if I were to imagine somebody running for president, let's say, in, in 2024, wanting to connect with people who either have been left at the side of the road or feel they might be, this would sound like an awfully good idea. That's why I've been amazed that politicians don't think along this line for their own purpose. Yeah. Okay. Uh, We haven't talked about this yet, but it's sort of, it's been on my, it's always on my mind actually is, um, you know, we've, we've come through the last 40 years or so of massive reshaping of the American economy away from kind of routine jobs, routine skill jobs into higher and higher levels of skill being needed on the job. And it's been, it's been bumpy, right? I mean, this has been hard on a lot of people and it has contributed to the instability of our society, of our politics, of, 
of everything. I'm concerned, actually, and I want to get your thoughts on this, is I'm concerned about the impact of artificial intelligence on the potential um, sort of for more of the sort of human skill obsolescence problem that we've been dealing with. Have you thought much about AI from that perspective? And in particular, the, I don't know if you're familiar with sort of the, the argument among economists about sort of good AI and bad AI in terms of its impact on employment? No, I think it's a very important question. You know, in previous economic and social transitions, while they've been disruptive, they've been easier to manage skills. For example, when the nation was converting from agriculture to manufacturing, obviously enormous economic and social upheaval, but actually many people on farms had general skills that were still useful in the manufacturing of the day. That wasn't wasn't as bumpy a transition as, say, manufacturing to services has proven to be uh, in the economy. General purpose technologies, by which I mean a a change that all other technologies get built around, think um, electrification or um, mainframe computing, the Internet, and today artificial intelligence and robotics, those can be the most disruptive. And for the labor market, there's really two effects. AI can enrich employment possibilities in some areas, that is, new kinds of jobs, that is, making um, enormously intuitive people even more successful by arming them with data. It can also make some more routine jobs uh, redundant. And so there are going to be both effects, and our goal as a in, in workforce development ought to be to help more people get in the former bucket and fewer in, in the latter bucket. I remember a few years ago when there was the debate over um, Mexican truck drivers, I said to a reporter, I'm not worried about Mexican truck drivers. I'm worried about no truck drivers. That what happens in a world where a mid-skilled job that's good wages for many men just goes away? That's, that's a concern. So I, I'm a little flabbergasted that given that we know this wave is coming at us, we've seen very little in our political and economic discourse on it. What are some of the things that we could do in trying to think, all right, we, we learned something out of the last 40 years. Like we had this program called TAA that was supposed to be the, you know, the cushion for people impacted by trade, that's trade adjustment assistance. It turned out that our bigger problem was on the automation side and not on the trade side per se, what needs to happen at the macro level to get us in a better position to be able to absorb the shock that looks like it's coming? Great question. I would say we need to be both more general and more local. But let me explain what I mean by that. So by more general, you're right. You know, trade adjustment assistance, which started in President uh, John F. Kennedy's um, trade liberalization law in 1962, was supposed to cushion the benefits of trade. It actually was rarely applied. I, I hardly ever heard political leaders talk about trade adjustment assistance unless trade promotion authority or some other uh, trade idea was, was on the table. It wasn't particularly helpful. Nor should it really matter, am I losing my job because of a foreign competitor, a domestic competitor, technology? I mean, why, if I'm a worker, I don't know why one is more special than the other. So we need to be general. And I think when we look at programs that we've done in the past that worked, like the land-grant colleges, like the GI Bill, they were very general. They weren't trying to just deal with one specific source of change, but they were also local. You know, one of the things I talk about in the book on the land-grant colleges in particular, community colleges today also have this example, is that while support came from Washington, the tailoring of the institutions was done at a local level for a local economy, developing agricultural extension services, manufacturing extension services. It proved to be very, very valuable. So I think when we're thinking about what works and what doesn't, we do need to solve problems generally, but not with a one-size-fits-all solution. And that comes up as well in, in place-based aid, too. But in all of these um, Thinking macro in the sense of all shocks in the same bucket, but thinking locally in the sense of how to design a program that works. Okay, so 
there are a couple issues underneath that that I want to get into. What do you, what do you make of the argument about tax treatment of business spending on human capital relative to other non-human capital? In other words, right now there's a pretty you know a much more favorable tax treatment of investments in plant and equipment or software programs or it could be tangible or intangible, but non-human capital is advantaged over human capital. What do you, what do you make of that as a, as a, one of those general levers that you're talking about the, you know, at the general level, is that something that needs to be adjusted? I, I do think we need to think harder there. I would make the problem, um, you know, a little more complex than you described. So think about uh, worker training. If I were on my own in my company to train my workers better, um, they could go to you. You'd, you'd be willing to pay them more than I was, but not the full cost of the training that I spent. Well, that's not an unsolvable problem. Right. It's a free rider problem. It's externality, and we do know how to solve those problems. We think of them in, in terms of tax credits and, and things that sort of subsidize the activity. We do that with R&D, for example, because of the – free rider problem on, on knowledge. So I think we need to think harder about the tax code. You know, unfortunately in, in our tax discussions, we tend to think in buckets, like what should we do for investment or what should we do about the overall level of the corporate tax rather than taking a more Smithian view of what is it we're trying to get the system to accomplish and how do we solve that? And, and maybe if our goal of mass participation and flourishing were the goal, maybe we'd have a slightly different tax system. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of links back to the discussion about the uh, personal reemployment accounts. You know, if the long-term costs of reskilling were being handled in a way that spread those costs across business, across society, across workers, rather than making everybody stand on their own, fix their own problem, uh, you wouldn't have that beggar thy neighbor effect of, you know, one business trains an employee and the other business hires them away without having to make that investment. The way you put it about standing on your own, I think it's also very important, right? Because remember, we normally think of agency in our lives as dealing with risks that our own effort, energies, activities can manage. But the shocks we've been talking about, about technological change and globalization, there's very little that you or I can do about that. Those changes will bring amazing changes, they'll make whole jobs go away, others flourish. People need help with that. That's not something I can stand on my own to do. And that's, I think, a lot of the source of voter frustration is you're asking me to cope with this, but you're not helping me. So why aren't we doing anything about it? What's standing in the way? Well, I think part of it is every piece we've been talking about as bridges are reasonable things but none is a silver bullet. I, I, can't, I can't claim that if we did one or two things, the whole problem would go away. And the alternative of, of talking about walls is, is a little more seductive. I, I keep hoping that because the walls have been such an abysmal failure and because we did have a time in which bridges worked in this country, then maybe we can, can go back to that. The other element, I hate to say it because it's closer to home for me, is the economics profession. You know, our neoliberal orientation, which I think is good at a broad matter, has made us a little more removed from the transition, if you will, what's happening to people in periods of change. It's not that economists don't know about it or understand it, but it doesn't figure as much into our consciousness. And I think we have to change too. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a really good point. I mean, we it's uh, we know that in the long run, everybody's going to get richer. So let's just not it's just not in a in a neoliberal policy setting. Everyone's going to get richer over the long run. So let's just not let's not worry about this. You know, um, it's it's a problem. Uh, it's a, the the solution lies inside the problem. We're just going to get richer, and people are going to do better, and we're all going to you know be better off. That does leave a lot of people hanging who aren't going to make the transition from grocery store cashier to the back office IT manager of the grocery store. I mean, it's one thing to say that we're going to be creating more jobs or better jobs or different jobs, but it's not always like there's no pathway there for the person who has been automated out 
So, well, yeah, go it's ahead. interesting because here it's been the conservative movement that hasn't stepped up to the plate. The left has arguments here. Their argument is we'll just pension off the grocery cashier. Now, I would say that's a lack of dignity and, and understanding of the decency of participation that everybody wants in the economy. But the right really hasn't served up a lot of ideas. You know, there was good work done several years ago by Paul Ryan uh, when he was in the Congress, but and George Bush obviously had a lot of thinking in this regard, but you don't see it in contemporary conservative discussion. I would hope that candidates for president in 2024, be they Democrat or Republican, could start serving up some ideas like this instead of talking about either writing bigger checks or just telling people to get on with their lives. And I'll, and I'll just heighten the irony there um, that a party that claims increasingly to represent the interests of community, individuals and communities who have sort of been left out of the rising, you know, they've been left behind in the rising tide of prosperity, ought to have a message around this, ought to have a policy and not just a grievance. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes I hear conservative politicians say, you know, there's just too much going on in the world right now to deal with this. Well, the land-grant colleges, the Morrill Act, was signed by President Lincoln in the middle of the Civil War, where Lincoln also did the Homestead Act. He also authorized the Transcontinental Railroad. Each of those policies in the Lincoln administration's ideas was to radically expand the opportunity in a transition. That was once a kind of muscular approach uh, of the Republican Party. Franklin Roosevelt, obviously a Democrat, did it with the GI Bill. But we, we can do this. It's not like these are, you know, pie-in-the-sky ideas. We do know how to do it. We're just not doing it. Yeah, I mean, even even if you can solve the sort of populist conundrum uh, of this, we don't, you know, we've, we've got too many other important things to do. And we, it's very difficult, I think, to mesh on the conservative side, those who are committed to a free market um, perspective, uh, with the idea that government should do more to soften the impact of of the free market development, and I, you know, I've thought about that for twenty five years, and I've never really figured out a way of talking about it that can sort of bridge that divide on the right between those who, you know, they see the problems of the working class, want to do something about it, and uh, and those saying just you know hands off the economy, this is a problem that's going to take care of itself. Well, that's why it's so important. So we need more Smith to complement Hayek and Friedman, by which I mean, if you go back to Smith's idea of mass participation, mass flourishing, we need an ability to compete. Those, to me, strike me as fundamentally conservative individual liberty ideas, consistent with everybody, everything else in Smith's thinking. And make, make no mistake about it. If we don't formulate policy in this way, there are voices. We're suggesting we just need to protect jobs, and that's crazy too. You know, and I, I think about my own students. Many of the jobs they want didn't even exist when I was their age, and so why would I want a bureaucracy in Washington defining what a good job is? Yeah. We need to prepare people for jobs that will will come. You know, I know that it's fashionable among some who call themselves conservatives to say everybody since Smith in the economics profession has been wrong. Now that's possible, but it's also possible, dot, 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 that those individuals are just dead wrong. Uh, and I think they are. But we do need more Smith. Um, okay, so I wanted I want to wrap up on this, uh, which I hope is an anticlimax, but I, you talk a little bit about place-based aid as well as uh, we've talked about sort of person-centered assistance, you know, and and we've talked a little bit about the role of community colleges, all good. Talk about your thoughts on place-based aid and geographic mobility. This is an enormously complex question. I think my own prior several years ago would have been back to sort of a Horace Greeley admonition of go west, young man, or go west, young person. In other words, there's opportunity out there, and go figure out where it is and go there, and it's not really an economic concern, as long as people have the funds to move around. That mobility that people may have in their mind's eye is, is less true in practice. And I think 
Part of it is a set of stories one can tell about social insurance and barriers to mobility, but partly is another political economy thinker we may be forgetting, Carl Polanyi, who published his book on the Great Transformation, literally the same year Hayek wrote The Road to Serfdom. But Polanyi's argument was, you know, community is important as a tissue in the economy, a social tissue. It's not just markets. Uh, we need communities. There's a reason, a number of reasons people don't leave communities. So there may be a role for place-based aid. What it can't be is a one-size-fits-all solution. So what it could be is more like block grants that are focused on business development and jobs as opposed to building libraries and beautification sites. So we could do this. There have been a number of instances in the U.S. economy where local areas have managed to reinvent themselves. There's much we can learn from that. But I think there's a lot of good work that needs to be done on place-based aid. And more and more economists are starting to become interested in this. So I think Hopefully, the next president will see some proposals that he or she could decide to at least experiment with. Yeah, I mean, it, it strikes me as uh, this conversation always strikes me as a leadership problem. I think, uh, it's, well, it's two problems. It's a leadership problem. Do you have the energy, the capacity, the interest among leaders in a given geographic area to go through that process of reinvention? Because that's not simple. I mean, that's. It, Really complicated, very hard. Lots of entrenched interests that you have to that you have to figure out how to align behind a vision for transformation. That's that's just not easy to do. But then you've got layered on top of that the way that the federal programs themselves operate, which interferes with the ability of of local leaders to to lead and to develop their plans. And so I, you know, we've got to we got to work on both ends of that. We have to provide the opportunity for loca- states and localities to to reinvent by getting the, you know decentralizing, getting out of the way, and then. The, but there's a tremendous amount of work that has to be done in just building the capacity of local communities to do that work. I mean, it's not. I'm very Smithian in this way that you can't organize people. They have to organize themselves. And that's my, my the tension that I see in the place-based aid idea is that we just, you know, do we have what we need at the local level to take these things on? Well, I agree with that. And I think where it probably winds up starting is more local experiment with supports from private philanthropy or, or local funding. You know, an example I use in the book of Pittsburgh's reinvention, you know, Pittsburgh and Youngstown aren't that far apart if, if you look at the map. And yet Pittsburgh reinvented itself and Youngstown didn't. And they both got hit with the same shock. And so there are lessons there about foundation support, about the involvement of universities, the business community stepping up to the plate that are instructive. Yeah, no, I agree. You, you know, it's, uh, that civic leadership question is critical. I mean, I don't, I don't know who it was in Pittsburgh who was the main mover, but I suspect that we would recognize their names from major families and business institutions. It was. It was yeah. the, the Mellon Foundation was extremely instrumental financially, but it was local CEOs and business leaders who got together and said, you know, we can, we can fix this, and university leaders. And I think areas can do this. So the federal government may need to provide some support, but private philanthropy can also be a place, uh, a place to start. Yeah, it's a real catalyst, which brings me to my last question. I've written some on this. I did an interview with a guy by the name of Leon Cooperman down in Florida. He's a billionaire, profiled in the Washington Post. Uh, what do you tell, tell me what you think? This this relates to the civic leadership question, but tell me what you think about the war on billionaires. I know you've I know you've talked about it. Well, it's interesting. I know Lee Cooperman very well. He is one of my graduates and a longtime friend, and I'm very proud of Lee's success. Obviously. And, finance and business. And personally, I don't spend much of my time thinking about rich people. I spend a lot of my time thinking about people left behind. And I don't see how my going after Lee Cooperman or anybody else who's fortunate as he has been uh, is going to change that. And so I, I think we really need to refocus ourselves away from billionaires 
to focusing on people left behind. If we say we have an economic problem because to be a billionaire came because of connections or corruption instead of hard work and innovation, then go after that. But I see no evidence that that's the way most people are getting rich in America. So I, I noticed, yeah, I noticed yeah. one statistic in your book that, that billionaires retain about, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I read this, which is, billionaires retain about 2% of the value that they yeah, create. Yeah, it comes that comes from work by Bill Nordhaus, a Nobel laureate in economics. And, you know, we tend to think that, you know, Bill Gates is really rich. And yes, he is. I would never have anything like Bill Gates has. But think of all the value that Bill Gates has created for other people. The vast majority of the value that's created by innovators doesn't remain with themselves. So, you know, if you ask me, would I like to have more Bill Gateses or the late Steve Jobs or other people like that in our economy? Of course I would. Would I understand that maybe a few more of them would be billionaires? I could care less, you know, as long as they're generating value for society. As I say, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the rich. Our focus ought to be at other places. We're not going to make the poor rich by making the rich poor. Uh, right. And, and uh, that I, I was I just really struck by the fact that you know, Lee Cooperman and, and people like him, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, these people are leaving, first of all, they're supporting and, and paying wages and benefits to hundreds of thousands of people that are employed through what they are, the, the, the value that they are producing. And then uh, they're leaving most of it behind, right? That, because it's, it's actually not possible to spend that money. Right. It'll be either their children's problem or a big foundation. I mean, again, these are just not concerns I have, yeah. mainly because I do think most people, at least of whom I'm aware, who are wealthy people, got so by either their own innovativeness or hard work. Yeah. Yeah. No, everybody wants a billion dollars, but if you have to look at the kind of work that's required to create that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Who wants that? I mean, I'm glad that somebody wants it because they're doing a lot, an awful lot of good unintentionally, as Smith would say. You know, they, it's not part of their plan. Their plan is to generate profit, uh, but they end up benefiting everybody else along the way by accident. So, okay. Well, Glenn Hubbard, thank you so much for joining me uh, on Hardly Working. This has been a fascinating and stimulating conversation. And I look forward to being in touch with you as we sort of dive into these problems in coming years. Um, as you say, there's a lot of work to be done, but a lot of good to be done too. Thanks, my, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.